You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeld. I'm your host. Today, we have a special guest, Brett Hickey from Star Mountain Capital. Brett is CEO and founder there. Brett, welcome to the program. Thanks, Bruce. And uh, nice to be introduced to everybody uh, verbally. Yeah. So I always like to start these episodes with just a little bit of background. We would love to hear a little bit about your story, about how you got into uh, the business. You know, what is it that Star Mountain does? Just to give a little context to folks on the podcast. Yeah, sure. I guess the probably most relevant is uh, I have been investing in private, established, small and medium-sized businesses for the last 15 years, have invested both directly where I've led investments and indirectly through investing with other funds and other partners in over 250 companies over that 15-year time period. And today, uh, Star Mountain, the firm that I founded and am the CEO of, I believe we are the largest investor in established uh, private, small, and medium-sized businesses in America with a portfolio of over 250 companies today that generally range from 10 million to 150 million of annual revenues. And uh, other than that, as far as a probably couple little fun facts, uh, I think any entrepreneur and people building small businesses can't be scared of labor and working hard. So I paid for college on the oil drilling rigs working there. I grew up in Canada. And I used to speed skate on the national team in Canada. So a couple of little facts yeah. about me uh, prior to my uh, moving to Wall Street, New York in 2002 and building my career in the private equity industry. And, and other than that, I started as an investment banker at Solomon's with Barney prior to uh, private equity and private lending investing. Great. And that gives us good context. And I'm always surprised about how many entrepreneurs have some kind of professional supports background. There must be something about the discipline and the focus of that that lends itself well to entrepreneurialism. Yeah, I think the concept and and I've got a second young kid on the way now. So looking at education, how it's changing, the concept of grit and how important that is. And I think there are a lot of ways to get grit, but learn tenacity. But sports is certainly one of them. Um, So as we think about hiring people, building talent. We really look for traits of high quality athletes more so than what their specific skills they might have from the past. Yeah. And actually, Brett and I know each other uh, sort of vicariously through McGill and Entrepreneurs Organization. And and I was a rower at McGill and I always tie back a lot of my sort of business discipline to what I learned by having to wake up at 5 a.m. every day <laughs> and get especially on the water. Where, especially where it's cold in Montreal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's some brutal October uh, practices that I remember. Um, Character building. Yeah, exactly. Good. So we're interested in kind of this service-based business service sector. And one of the things I always like to kind of point out to folks is I think everyone kind of goes into, you know, starting up companies with this idea of, you know, I'm going to build an app and I'm going to put it on the app store and I'm going to make a billion dollars, right? That, that there's going to be this kind of, I'm going to develop this thing that automatically sells itself. And I think if you look at the data, most businesses in the U.S. have some either service-based businesses or have some kind of service component. So it is kind of core to most businesses. And it is kind of a challenge. It's not comes with its own kind of obstacles, its own constraints. But let's talk just from an investment point of view, as you look at companies 
as an investor, when you, I guess, first, let's just kind of define service-based companies a little bit. What would you refer to as a service-based company or how do you, what do you look for? What do you look at as a company when you say that it's a service-based company? Yeah, good question, Bruce. And I also agree with your point. Well, uh, one out of a billion, I'm not sure what the exact stats are, will, will become the next Zuckerberg or something of that nature. It's a, a pretty thin probability, whereas I think that there are high-quality business service opportunities and business models that folks can build and have built that are much more resilient and have a much higher probability of an attractive financial outcome. So you're less likely to become a multi-billionaire running a service business, but you're probably a lot more likely to become a $25, $50 million net worth person. And so as I think about life, I would rather remove the binary outcomes of uh, living on a friend's couch uh, or being a billionaire to rather just having a higher probability, high quality of life. And I think that's what business service industries can provide people much more easily. And that's why we also, as investors, it's a large focus for us. I would define a business service company as a business that is predominantly providing a service rather than a product to it can be individuals or other businesses so it can be a b2c or a b2b model but ultimately they tend to be pretty asset light businesses Uh, for example we have a company that today as a matter of fact for something real time that we're providing another investment to a company that does uh, refrigeration install service and repairs so if you think of any grocery store or any cooling machine in airports train stations anywhere you see those things need to be serviced and uh, the people that own them and have them in their properties don't have the technicians and service people to do it. So a biz like that has very little assets, which makes banks not very good at lending to them, mm-hmm. yet can be very recession resilient because even in a down economy and at some juncture here, your crystal ball is just as good as mine, but at some <laughs> juncture here, our next recession will be upon us. And yeah. I always like to remind people that prior to any recession, nobody rave, waves a red flag and says, okay, time to batten down the hatches. You yeah. know, the, the recession is going to be upon us. So I think that good point for folks to just keep in mind. But that's where services, they're helping other people, they're working with other businesses, and they tend to be very asset light. So that's a pretty broad range. Healthcare services, business services, technology services. You know, I think there's even things that can be in and around you know, related industries such as transportation logistics, where they're also servicing yeah. other people to get things done, you know, connecting dots and so forth. Yeah. And I think you're pointing out a good kind of range in the service industries. I mean, you have everything from, you know, highly skilled, highly educated professional labor down to, you know, lower, lower skilled labor, manual labor type of services. They, they all have sort of the same dynamic as I need, I need people. I often deal with logistics. I have to deal with sort of geographies and things like that, that really make that unique. And your comment on the assets, I think is interesting because yes, it makes it really tough for lending because you don't have hard assets to be able to put a collateral against. Uh, but it also means that it, they're easy to start and they can often be easy to scale at certain levels because you don't need a whole lot of 
you know, upfront capital or, or money to infuse into the business. Uh, you often need short-term capital to be able to handle training and hiring and things. But um, but it is kind of the unique conundrum of service-based businesses. E- easier to start, sometimes harder to break through certain levels because of the, the dynamics. Any particular things that you look for in terms of the financials or, you know, w- when you're looking at the operational performance of a service-based business, things that sort of jump out to you or you typically go to when looking at their at their books? Yeah, it's a good question, Bruce. How, how do we analyze yeah. business service companies when we are investing in them? One of the advantages that we have at Star Mountain that we're fortunate is that we have, I believe, the largest amount of data and information on private businesses in America at our end of the market. We have we have more data information than anybody does, and we have a, a custom-built technology platform that allows us to really analyze that yep. data and look at it. So we then take all that data and information, and we do a real top-down approach. So I think the first thing to look at is the industry that the business is in. I always like to say that you know, no matter how hard um, pick you as a rower, no matter how hard yeah. you're pulling, if the if your boat's in the water and it, the water's frozen, I mean, you're probably not going to move very quickly. Not yeah. sure if that's a good analogy or not. <laughs> But the Rowing in oil that, versus uh, exactly, water. Exactly, yeah. right? So if, no matter how talented you are, no matter how hard you work, if you're fighting against brutal yeah. industry trends, those are hard battles to win. And I think the oil and gas industry, the real estate industry tend to have a lot more cyclical trends associated with them. And despite paying for a college work on the oil rigs, which I'm uh, very <laughs> thankful for, um, we generally don't invest in those industries as a result of the cyclical nature of industry trends. So yeah. one aspect around industry is cyclical aspects to look at. A second is just trends in general. And I think starting with the macro perspective, what's going on with competition from Asia or other emerging markets that are very large and have much lower costs of labor yeah. and trying to you know, have some educated focus on what the next you know, 10 years are going to look like. I think when you try to forecast too far out, the the relevance becomes really tough. Uh, So that's the first one. The second thing after looking at the industry that the business is in and making sure that it's got some tailwinds rather than headwinds associated with it is to look at the business model itself and aspects of the business, including wanting to have a diversified customer base. And I think this is an important consideration for business owners. You may have a great customer that you're scaling with But understanding and acknowledging that customer concentration risk or a supplier risk, right? If you can't Mm. quickly, easily pivot out of a different supplier or a distribution channel partner or just clients in general, mitigating those risks as you're building your business up to make it safer will make you sleep better at night. It will make your business valued higher. People will lend to you more readily. People will pay a higher price for a safer business. So it's not just revenue and EBITDA. It also matters the safety and stability of one's business, which an obvious one for a smaller business that people fight through is customer concentration. Let me me ask a little bit on that one, because I think this one comes up quite a bit. And typically what I see is that a business has found kind of a, a lead customer to help kind of establish it and grow it up to a certain point. And, and quite honestly, it's been successful. You know, they they use that one customer to really drive revenues, drive some amount of cash flow that they can use to then build up the business. But then, yes, they, they have to pivot out of that. They have to get out of that kind of key customer risk. Is there, and I'm sure this is 
sort of industry and situation specific to a great extent, but is there any percentages or is there any kind of concentration that you kind of look at as being, hey, look, this is unhealthy. This is like, uh, it's, it's worrisome, but okay, versus this is really where we want to be. Like, what do you have any sense of that? Yeah, to quantify customer concentration and what gives us concern, you know, to pick a pick a bit of a number, I would say it's nice if no single customer represents more than 15% of your, not only just revenue, but also of your profits. Sometimes you might have a really large customer, different customer, and they pay you different rates for your services. So it's important to look at the revenue concentration as well as the profitability concentration. And then a second aspect in customer concentration is looking at your top three, top five, and top 10. And ideally, your top 10 represent less than 50% of your revenue. Uh, And again, profits looking through. So those are a couple metrics thinking about customer concentration that I think are good to try to get to if you can. Yeah, I think those are so 15%, no one customer more than 15% of either profit or revenue. And I think the profit comment is actually really good because I think a lot of people don't look at that. They'll look at the revenues, but when they actually go, and sometimes it's hard, I've certainly seen this where it's hard for companies to really map profit to customer. Uh, But if you've done a fairly good job of kind of project costing out your expenses and stuff, you should be able to map or at least have a pretty good essence of what that profit uh, contribution is for that customer. Uh, And then top so top 10, no more than 50%. What were your other numbers? Top five, no more and then than top. Yeah. So top uh, 10, less than 50%. And then I think you're, you're, um, if, if you look at a top three, ideally those top three are less than 30%. Okay. You know, that's probably the main one. No single customer larger than 15%, top three, less than 30% and top 10, less than 50% or some nice yeah. rules of thumb, you yeah. know, some industries parameters and your point around the profitability of any one customer, there are variables that are hard to measure how much time and effort you put into any one customer that might be challenging, but at least you can look at some basic things of what they're paying you for the same general service and what I like to advise business owners is that nothing's ever perfect, but having no information and no <laughs> yeah. dashboards, that's definitely not perfect. So something is better than nothing. And over time, you just kind of improve it and look at it. But um, thinking about prioritizations as business owners are, are important. So it's not granular to the penny, but at least being directionally accurate, I think, to be informed, to analyze and evaluate and not just work in your business, but also work on your business. You need data to help do that. And then as you break kind of down more granular with that top-down analytical approach in the business, I think the next thing that we really look at is the balance sheet, um, analyzing how much debt, for example, you have on your business. Moody's did a really good report over about 25 years, and they found that the single largest determinant of a business defaulting on its debt is how much leverage it has. So don't have too much debt because a customer could leave and and looking at those things and you know the more stable your business the more debt you can generally handle but even with that said whether we look recently at Toys R Us or mm-hmm. pick Caesar's yeah. Palace right yeah. really big companies going through challenges just too much debt burden and so bigger doesn't always mean safer as far as businesses you've yeah. got to focus on keeping your business just like your personal life prudently managed for challenging economic times and uncertainties and so that's where we look at businesses then to have a prudent balance sheet 
structure as far as debt's the biggest thing. Do you, do you separate out debt? I'm just kind of curious in, in terms of how you look at categories of debt. Um, do you separate out kind of the short-term debt? I, I know a lot of companies that end up with these kind of short-term line of credit, you know, facing factoring receivables. Like I've got to, you know, I've got to make payroll this month, but I'm essentially getting paid for all of that next month versus, you know, longer term debt that I may have taken on to, you know, build out operations or do a big marketing campaign or something. Do you look at that differently from an investor point of view? We do. Yes, we look at, you know, that's where you start to look at liquidity features that get into asset and liability matching. So if your account receivables are coming in and you have debt that is being paid from those accounts receivables and what kind of margin do you have there of excess account receivable relative to your short-term account payables, Mm -hmm. I'll call it, and putting debt in that category for that shorter-term revolver. And we certainly do get into that, but just as the kind of high-level stress test, you know, keep keeping leverage generally low. I mean, we sort of have a bit of a rule of thumb of, you know, four times um, total debt to EBITDA or less. So if your business is doing 5 million of annual earnings before interest tax depreciation amortization, you know, having, you know, being able to have less than 20 million of total debt, that's just a starting point. You know, you may want to whittle that down if you have customer concentration risks. You may want to be lower if your mm-hmm. business has more cyclicality or seasonality to it. You know, those are things that are going to want to bring it down from there. So it's not going up from there, but it's coming down from that leverage ratio. But that's just a nice kind of rule of thumb ceiling, I think, for people to start with. The other one that's really important that's less prevalent in a lot of business service companies, but nonetheless, it still exists, is taking EBITDA minus CapEx. So just like when okay. people own a home, uh-huh. you know, you, you can't just say, well, here's my annual monthly expenses. You need to say, you know, any year I might have to fix X, Y, or Z from yeah. roofing to heating to you name it. And so you need to plan for that. That should not be a surprise. And so taking EBITDA and reducing it by your maintenance capex, so your reasonably probable capital expenditures, so that if your EBITDA was five million and maybe you have another five hundred thousand of you know reasonably probable annual capex, yep. that means you're taking your number down to four point five million and then you know, that's really your basis of more predictable annual cash flows. Yeah. Uh, and then when you dive a bit deeper from the the balance sheet and, and leverage ratios and whatnot, you know, then, then you also get into team as a critical one is team yeah. and alignment. And when you look at team, aside from ourselves, of course, um, yeah. you know, nobody else <laughs> is perfect, but, you know, nobody's perfect, right? Everybody has yeah. strengths and weaknesses, including ourselves and being yeah. cognizant of that, having awareness of that. We really like to see that and say, hey, you know, you may have been the founder and you're a phenomenal engineer or a phenomenal creative or sales or marketing person or CFO oriented person that keeps the train on the tracks. How are you supplementing leadership around you that is showing awareness and really building out the right framework? And then have you built redundancies because there's risks around team and anyone leaving, getting sick, things happen. This is real life. And so, you know, we look at that. We think alignment is critical. There's not a lot of data that I'm aware of or research that, that explicitly tells people that you want your team aligned to want the same outcomes as you. But philosophically, and certainly how we run our business at Star Mountain, even 100% of the employees at Star Mountain 
have equity in our business. Yeah. So I wake up every day feeling good that 100% of my employees are trying to achieve the same goals that I care about and that our, our investors care about. So I personally think that's critical. And I actually think that it is in my financially selfish long-term uh, best interest yeah. to do it. Yeah. Right? Because I think that I will and my team will create more value, work harder, be more energized, pay more attention, care more about the nickels and dimes and do a better job and also, you know, both engage and retain people better by having that alignment of interest. So I I strongly advise business owners to think about creating alignment plans and being smart about them, vesting schedules and so forth so that when somebody leaves, they don't just rip a whole bunch of equity out of the business that isn't there to be aligned with the rest of the employees who are working hard and aligned with you and the other shareholders. But, you know, happy to talk more about that. Yeah, let's, time. let's dig into that. Well, let's dig into that a little bit, just because I think you're hitting on a, a really interesting one for me. In terms of from an investor kind of uh, financial performance look at the business, that this whole team thing really becomes critical for you because I think that that there is a there is a trajectory for a founder CEO, you know, and and in the beginning of that process, you're very sort of customer, sort of problem focused in terms of what does the customer need? How are we going to build a solution to that? How are we going to deliver it? They become very sales focused, but ultimately they, they really need to pivot and focus about around how do I build a leadership team that is going to grow and scale this business? And and quite honestly, a lot of a lot of founders don't make that transition. <laughs> they get they get very stuck in that early stage. And so there's a certain amount of what do you want to do? What, like, what are you really driven by? And then do you want to make that switch to really le- leading the company and leading the leadership team? Or do not. And if not, we can find a role for you inside the leadership team that that is technically focused or design focused or sales focused. Uh, But then we need to bring in that that team to surround uh, to surround them that can actually lead the growth of the business. I mean, other than kind of, uh, you know, discussions and interviews, is there anything that you're kind of looking for in knowing that that has happened or knowing that they're seeing that and they're putting the things in place they need to put in to be successful? Yeah. So you brought up a funny little saying that we like to talk to business owners about is, would you like to be wealthy or be king? And understanding (laughs) the difference to say that, hey, you can be the king of your castle, control, micromanage everything. That is a really low probability path of maximizing your financial wealth for yourself or, or your shareholders. And so I think it's it's uh, important. And it's one of the things that we do with business owners. A lot of people on uh, the biggest side of Star Mountain's business, people refer to us as being a value-added lender where we're effectively being your private equity partner, where you're McKinsey slash Bain consulting partner, where you're Goldman Sachs type of investing partner. And so not only are we giving you capital, but knowledge, data, resources, relationships, and how to structure and frame your management team, your board of directors, how to think about your growth path, what are businesses, who's going to buy you, how are you yeah. going to exit at the end of the day, and, and just work backwards, just like any business plan to say, hey, if you think you're going to sell to a strategic buyer versus a private equity buyer, you will do things differently. The strategic buyer might say, I couldn't care less about certain operational things exactly. you have. I'm really going to be buying you for your customers and your market penetration in a certain region or what have you. So thinking about that as you get longer term within your business, I think is really critical. And then also analyzing your own risks. Like for me personally, um, I think a lot of 
private equity and private investors are really good at analyzing other people, but not so much themselves. And I, and I think that's just part of life, right? People love yeah. giving advice and opinions, but then you say, hey, you know, how much are you eating your own cooking and, and taking your own advice? And when I look at things, um, you know, for for my business and I think about my family, my, my son and my daughter who's uh, on route and my wife and making sure that if something happens to me, I want to make sure they're taken care of. And so thinking, you know, things can happen. You know, my my mom died when she was 39 years old of cancer and yeah. things happen. It's not like any of us want to have that happen, but things do occur. And I, I personally get comfort actually investing time and effort into having a business that makes me feel proud that I'm protecting my family, my business partners, my employees, and my shareholders alike, because you have to find some motivation behind it because it's not structuring things to be protective is not driving short-term value, but it's creating long-term value. And I think that helps people attract the right type of investment partners and Mm -hmm. high-quality investment partners and also the more sophisticated and high-quality teammates and partners when they appreciate that you're working hard for them and understanding them. And then, you know, people like yourself that help coach business owners and sit down and say, hey, I'm going to help you work through these things because yeah. you know they are reasonably complex and and uh, uh, recognize this in audio. But as you can see behind, you know, our, our walls are whiteboard walls and stuff. Yeah. And we frame things out and map things out and draw them out and look for risks. And then there are there's one technology software I'll share with people that takes quite yeah. a bit work with it. It's not super user friendly, but it's um, highly capable. It's called LucidChart. And so we use that to frame out every work function of our business and also the people to look for any key man type of risks, any process type of risks. And then um, we build out dashboards and other aspects to analyze and look at these the different aspects of our business with Rike, spelled W-R-I-K-E, which which, we've found to be a, a pretty effective tool as well. And we have no um, stake in either of those. This is a promotional message in a capacity. Those things that we've we've happened to find um, a pretty good balance of reasonable usability um, and also have enough um, functionality within them that you can really customize things if you put the time into it. But I think mapping out your business and also presenting your business to other people. So we have a very large advisory committee. Some of our advisory committee analyze technology. Some of them help with human resources. So finding advisors that are specialists in different core functions of your business and your industry and things of that nature, some that might be able to help with customers, some that might be help with team development, some with tech development, whatever it may be. And I present our work and I say, here's what I'm thinking about. Here's how we're building. Here's where I perceive risks. Here's what we're doing to mitigate these risks. What do you think? And so I find presenting things to people versus just verbally talking about it to be a massive difference. One, you can see it yourself and you can kind of self-analyze, but two, you're giving people real data and real information to analyze. And I know obviously when you're coaching people, you you frame things out for them as well. But I think a lot of people don't do that. They yeah, sort of talk about it, they think about it, they chat over a glass of wine or a beer and stuff and that makes them feel good, but they're not really fundamentally structuring things for the best 
you know, long-term risk reward. And I think you're framing it in a really interesting way, which is as you, as you move into that kind of growth phase, I mean, look at early in the business, things are scrappy, you're taking big risks. It's just kind of the nature of getting off the ground and getting, getting the business going. But once you get the business going, it really becomes, how do you get more thoughtful and calculated about the things that you're doing? And certainly the, the mapping things out, visualizing and getting input from lots of different sources, getting diversity of opinion, like all that stuff becomes really important. And it's important because you want to understand what are the possible things you might face. And and I think that risk analysis becomes really important, particularly when you're dealing with service-based businesses, because you're dealing with people. <laughs> Quite honestly, you know, people got complex and people can change and, you know, things happen. And, and having, uh, I always say that you, you should have an A, B, and C for every role. So you have, and one of those has to be internal. <laughs> so you have to have, you know, how would I replace this person if they, you know, took another job, if they got sick, if, you know, we call it hit by the bus, right? If they're, if they're no longer able to perform their duties, what, what is your A, B, and C plan? And one of those has to be internal. Like it may be, well, we're going to put someone in and we know that they're going to need a lot of help. We hire a coach, we do something to kind of support them, but I have to have a plan for every role. Cause if we don't have a plan, I mean, not only is it hard when we do things like getting investment and stuff like that, and they start asking questions, but it's really, it gives us the ability to then move forward with confidence. And if we don't know how would we handle certain situations, we're always going to be a little gun shy. We're always going to be hesitant about making the moves that we really need to make. And I would argue it helps us make bolder moves when we know we've got we've got plans in place, mitigation plans in place for the risks that we know we're going to face. So yeah, I think- It's cal- calculated risk. Exactly. I think there's, uh, I, um, I refer to this to a lot of people and some people would think that a smaller business might be riskier and um, what is it, um, what's the, the Canadian Malkiel- um, in any event, it'll yeah. come to me later. But yeah. there's a uh, there's a really famous guy that talks about the dynamic of how people perceive risk. And mm. some things, it's ignorance. It's you work at a really big company, you feel that it's safe. Well, it's just because you have no transparency or data into anything, yeah. and so you're not looking at risks. You don't have information. Well, sure, if you're looking at nothing, then of course that feels great because you're not analyzing or identifying risks. Yeah. Whereas a lot of business owners say, I want to see and understand the risks so I can actually do something about them and be prepared to do something about them. And that's certainly how I feel. And even investing in in the smaller private businesses we do, we've been quite successful in how we've been doing that over time for the last 15 years that, that I've been doing it. But the one of the fundamental things I find is that we can get our arms around a small business. We can truly understand the team, the culture, the customers. And on customers, there's also quality of customers. And if you have a big customer, what if they leave? What if they go bankrupt? So analyzing one's customers, one's suppliers, one's employees, you know, as many variables as possible. And with a smaller company, our average business that we're invested in has 50 million of annual revenue and about Mm -hmm. a 25 year operating history. We can get our arms around a lot of things and most things when you compare that to like a large public company, you know, you're going to tell me you understand what GE is or isn't doing or what they are or aren't going to do, never mind having any ability yeah. to control that direction. I personally find that a lot riskier than truly understanding an industry and a team that way. Yeah, um, yeah I agree. I agree. And we're going to hit time here in a second. So I want to, uh, th- this has been great. I love the conversation around not only the financial, but the actual sort of operational management side of things, how to identify risks, how to put plans and mitigate those and how those go into factoring like the, the attractiveness a company is from an investment point of view. Because I think a lot of these companies are in these positions where they have great opportunities to grow, but they need some kind of 
capital infusion, some kind of support in terms of getting to that next stage and, and making sure that they've got everything in order to be able to do that successfully is really important. Um, if people want to find out more about you, about Star Mountain, what's the best way to contact you or find out more information? Two best ways to learn more about Star Mountain and our investment platforms and different things we can do for business owners and for people that are looking to invest in the private business marketplace and industry. One is starmountaincapital.com on our website is pretty comprehensive in different ways to engage, including the roughly 85 events that we host and speak at across the country every year with local mayors and different things like that, sports teams to kind of make it fun and interesting, nice. uh, which is also part of life. Yeah. Uh, second is uh, our YouTube channel, which is a uh, YouTube forward slash C forward slash Star Mountain Capital. But if you just go into YouTube and type Star Mountain Capital, you'll find our channel that has our different videos and podcasts and different educational content in our CEO interview series that will hopefully be some good information and data for business owners. Great. I'll make sure that all of those links are in the show notes so people can click on them. I'll also make sure I get the names of the products or the, the software systems that we've recommended so people can reference those as well. Thank you for that. And Brett, this has been a pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time. Always a pleasure, Bruce. Have a great day. All right. Take care. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.